This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study the Word of God. We pray that you'd bless us this afternoon. Our final session for today, may you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Does anyone know what this is? Oh, it's the Rosetta Stone, and it's in the British Museum, and about the 5th century, a gentleman by the name of Ptolemy put this decree out, and it's actually in three different languages, Demotic, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and Greek, and prior to this time, Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics was never deciphered until they found this. And then a gentleman by the name of Jean-Francois Champollion, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, he cracked the code. And because of the Rosetta Stone, we're able to understand Egyptian hieroglyphics. And that's why we have the term today. It is the Rosetta Stone. It's a figure of speech that we use. And my thesis during this whole seminar is that the sanctuary is really the Rosetta Stone for helping us to understand the work of Jesus Christ, all right? And when we as a people abandon the sanctuary as our Rosetta Stone and replace it with something else, that is when we start going down a road that is a very challenging one for our theology. Great Controversy, page 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth. It is a systematic theology. The sanctuary provides a framework, connected, harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. The sanctuary is more than a doctrine. It is our framework for doing theology. All right? A doctrine is something that you understand A framework is something that you use as a reference point to understand. In terms of the work of Christ, we describe Christ's progression, AD 31, the cross, the courtyard, after AD 31 till 1844, holy place, most holy place, 1844 to this present day. The theme of the Bible is restoration. The central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters, is the redemption plan, the restoration in the human soul of the image of God from the first intimation of hope in the sentence pronounced in Eden to that glorious promise of revelation, they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. Complete restoration. The burden of every book and every passage of the Bible is the unfolding of this wondrous theme, man's uplifting, the power of God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to look at the sanctuary and understand that the role of Christ is dual. He's not only the lamb, but he's also the high priest. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb. He is also, according to the book of Hebrews, our high priest, as we just read in our last session, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, he is our high priest in heaven, in a heavenly tabernacle, not made by human hands. The function of the lamb and the function of the priest. Now, this is 
an incredible statement from Ellen White in the book Great Controversy, page 489. Listen to this. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Now, just let that sink in a little bit. Let me read that again. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. In other words, the cross and the high priestly ministry are essential for our salvation. However, there are theological frameworks out there today that say, you know what? It is to be centered around one entity to the minimization or the default rejection of the other. Please do not misunderstand me. The cross is foundational. The sanctuary does not progress if Jesus never dies. But Jesus changes roles after the death on the cross. Jesus is not hanging on the cross today. We are 2,000 years after the cross. What has he been doing that entire time? It is in the sanctuary that we understand what is taking place. So these things are not either or. They're both and. It is the lamb and the high priest. Now, when I studied the history of theology, I noticed that whether it came to any notion that was intention, there was an element, you can just see it down the line when you look at it through the scope of a hundred years of Christian theology, or hundreds of years, 2,000 years of Christian theology, and it could be described as reactionary or pendulum. You see this in the scholarly community. One person comes along and emphasizes one aspect. Another theologian comes along later and says, no, 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 that was an extreme, and reacts to that and reacts in the other direction. We experience this too in our own biographies, our own experiences, I meet them all the time. Someone that grew up in a very conservative home, perhaps legalistic, they get burned by legalism. As soon as they turn 18, I mean, it's just like, you know, and it just, the pendulum swings the other way, all right? And then, as my ministerial director said many times, conservative parents have liberal children, liberal children have conservative Anyways, you get the point. I got lost there. Been a long day. Been a long day. Conservative parents have liberal children. Liberal parents have conservative children. And not all the time, but in this reactionary element. All right? Now, this is the important thing that we need to react, realize. That in every extreme, there are elements of truth. You following me? So when you react, there are elements of truth in the extreme 
that you are in danger of reacting to. And you can see this all over the place. All right, so let's talk a little bit about law and grace. Here's a theological tension in Scripture. All right? If you center your theology on law to the rejection of grace, that's legalism. Okay? If you emphasize grace to the rejection of law, you have antinomianism. All right? That there is no morality. So you, you can see that there is this element of, of tension between the two in the history of Christian theology. I read this book in my studies. Here's another tension. Transcendence and eminence. Wow. You can actually go down through history, the history of Christian theology, and see the pendulum going back and forth, back and forth. Transcendence, God is beyond us. Transcendent. You look at the architecture in Europe. What does it emphasize in these basilicas? God is out there. He's out there. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. All right? So this is an emphasis in, in theology. So that you have transcendence, but you also have eminence. God is with us. All right? He's here. And you have very bright thinkers that are many times German that, that just... They just go back and forth. One person comes along and says transcendence. Another person says no eminence. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. You can see it just down the line of history, the history of Christian theology. All right? Now, an extreme of transcendence, an example of that is, is deism. God is so out there, he doesn't interact in our reality. No interaction. An extreme of eminence is pantheism or panentheism. God is so with us, he's in us. All right? He's in the water bottle, he's in the trees, he's in the flowers. I mean, it's a form of kind of a melding of Eastern mysticism. He's like in everything. All right? So th that is the challenge that you face, and it just kind of goes back and forth. Now, that's extreme, and there's variations of degrees in between these realities. All right, so let's talk about Christology. Oh, have mercy on us. All right, here we go. All right, the humanity and the divinity of Christ. The tension between the two. All right, shortly after Jesus died, the Greek mind started to contemplate how do we reflect on the humanity and divinity. These things seem so, just cannot coexist in one person, and so you had some reflections, and you had certain individuals that emphasized the divinity, docetism, the notion that Jesus was divine, and that his humanity was just an illusion. Huh? He just seemed human, but it was a mirage. He seemed hungry, but he wasn't really hungry. All right? just, just, just to, he, he appeared as being human, but he wasn't really human. All right, so that's one emphasis. And then you have on the other side, the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus during the Enlightenment period. Jesus was just human. A historical figure. And the Jesus of faith is not the Jesus of history. And we need to demythalize Scripture and find the real historical Jesus. He was just a man. Now, notice what happens. When you emphasize one and you center your theology on one, 
to the exclusion, the rejection, or the minimization of the other, you have heresy. That's what you have. All right? Specifically in reference to Christology. If you emphasize the divinity and reject the humanity, you have heresy. That's what it is. All right? Now, in the Christological debate in Adventism, it is not to this extreme, but it really centers in this kind of tension. How divine was Jesus? How human was Jesus? Specifically in regards to the tendency and the propensity for sin. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. But anyways, all right? And the, and the Adventism is divided specifically on that little notion right there. Was he born with the tendency? Was he not? How human was he? See, the, the, there's this tension there, and I'll try to dive in tomorrow into that a little, a little bit. All right. So we have faith and reason. All right. This is a theological debate that has gone on for centuries. All right? One person comes along and says, you know what? It's all about the heart. It's all about the experience. Another person comes along and says, no, it's about the mind. Some people during the Enlightenment said, unless you can prove something to a mathematical precision, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, you should not believe it. Because God speaks to us through our minds. So we have this whole tension that is here. Is it about the heart or is it about the mind? And debates have gone back and forth, back and forth in that regard as well. Here's another one. Justification, sanctification. All right? Evangelical community, our brothers and sisters say, you know what? It is justification alone. It is all about what God did for you. The declaration of righteousness. Then someone else comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's about transformation, sanctification, character development. And this debate goes on in Adventism today as well. Justification versus sanctification. Now, there is an important lesson that we can learn from astronomy. In 1605, Johannes Kepler, while observing Mars, came to the conclusion through observation and mathematical equations that the orbits of the planets around the sun was not in the Copernican model of a perfect circle. He observed that the planetary orbits was something different than a circle. It looked like a circle, but a circle did not describe the planetary motion. It was something we call an ellipse. Planetary motions are not circular. They are elliptical, and this is known as Kepler's first law of planetary motion. Now, the fundamental difference between a circle and an ellipse is that a circle centers on one central point. An ellipse centers on two. So here, you can do an ellipse at home, all right? Get two tacks, go around, centering it on two central points. It is impossible to properly describe the universe or planetary motion when you use a circular framework. 
It just does not fit. It is not until you come to an understanding of two central points that things come into a balance and an observable reality, the ellipse. Now, my contention today, my thesis, is that when we approach these tensions in Scripture, we need to not approach them as a circle, stating, look, it's either this or this, but we need to actually approach them as an ellipse, all right, and understand the relationship between the two. Let's take the human nature or the nature of Christ, the humanity and divinity. The only way that we can avoid heresy when it comes to the nature of Christ is through the elliptical approach. It is not divinity or humanity. It is divinity and humanity. Now, there are aspects of this that are going to remain a mystery. And we need to be okay with that. Right? I mean, it just... Th this is something perhaps we will be baffled about throughout eternity. I don't know. I mean, th this is just a beautiful tension. And we need to hold them there. All right? And there is revelation in regards to what the nature of Christ is and what it is not. But we need to be careful that we do not go beyond revelation and start speculating. That's where we get into a lot of problems. But this, this is a very important tension, a wonderful tension that we need to hold in place together. All right? Humanity and divinity. All right? We, when we center on divinity to the rejection of humanity, that is when we have heresy and vice versa. So this is an important consideration in regards to the nature of Christ. This is also important in regards to salvation. I believe that the notion of justification and sanctification should be held in a wonderful, beautiful tension together. And you understand that from the framework of the sanctuary. I mean, what we have done in the history of Christian theology, specifically in regards to soteriology, is that we've essentially gone in there and said, you know what, we're going to give a discount on the sanctuary. Courtyard alone. All right? This is all you need. And centered our theology on that. All right? Um, that's the evangelical framework. Catholic framework is more sanctification emphasis by works through the seven sacraments. John Wesley came along and said, you know, we need both, all right? Adventism said we need the whole thing. Courtyard, holy place, most holy place. It is pardon and power. Now, if a child comes to you and is naked and dirty, what is the first thing you're going to do? You're going to cover the child. I know this is kind of a crude illustration, but it's the only one I could think of. You're going to cover him, all right? But if you have time and the resources, what are you going to do after that? You're going to give him a bath, all right? And so you, you can see that in Scripture, there is an aspect of pardon, covering, but there's also an aspect of washing, you see that in Paul's writing, and 
regeneration because the trajectory of the plan of salvation is what? Restoration. That's the trajectory. All right? And that's the beauty of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of this that we can nuance and, and go through. And there, there are individuals that have really reacted to sanctification um, because, you know, I've been in circles where I heard a lot of sanctification sermons and I never heard a justification sermon. Not one in this particular group that I had the privilege of associating with. Anyways, okay, so, so anyways, not one, all right? So, so, so there's the challenge, and, and the thing is that if you center it over there, you have this, this problem where you're really struggling with, with assurance, all right? That, that really becomes an issue. And you're wondering, you know, am I in justification or out of justification? You go through this whole, whole challenging aspect, all right? Now, now, there needs to be a relationship between the two. Jesus declares us righteous. The moment that we accept Jesus as our Savior, surrender our lives to him, we are justified. Just like that. Instantaneously. And as we progress in the historical reality, there is a sanctification element that is continual throughout the lifetime. At any point that you die in the sanctification process, you are saved. It's not how far you get. It's being in the process. So you can have that assurance all along the way. You are declared righteous while you are being sanctified. All right, that's the beauty of the gospel. And so we can go into more of the nuances of this, but th there is this, this wonderful tension between the two. You know, when, when I approach a heroin addict, I can tell him, you know what? Your history of sin, Jesus can declare you righteous right now. But it is incomplete if I tell them, you know, you are declared righteous right now, but I have some bad news. You are going to be a heroin addict for the rest of your life. You're never going to overcome this. I mean, that, that is just really, really challenging. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus says, you know what? You're declared righteous and there is power to overcome your addiction. Now you may fall. You may struggle. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. All right? There's a difference between struggling with something because of your hereditary and cultivated tendencies and saying, you know what? I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to do this, and I don't care. Those are two different aspects in relationship to this. Ellen White says it's not the occasional misdeeds. It is the trend of the life. All right? It is the trajectory that God is looking at. It's your intention that God is looking at. And so that's the beautiful tension between these two. If you center your theology on sanctification, it becomes very anthropocentric, performance-driven, behaviorist-driven, and, and, and so forth. If you center your theology on justification, um, you really have uh, just a different perspective of the book of James, like uh, Martin Luther had, all right? Martin Luther didn't, didn't like the book of James, all right? Why was that? Because he centered his theology on justification. That's the reality. All right? so, so we need to 
bring these two and say, look, it is not either or, but both and. All right, so here we have the wonderful tension, the elliptical approach found in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Notice the sanctification emphasis. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So here is this wonderful tension between the two in the process of restoration. Here's one that we quote all the time, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. That's the part that we emphasize, all right? But notice it goes on, and to what? Cleanse, all right? So, so it's, it's about forgiving, pardoning, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to be very clear here from the very, you know, just from the outset. Justification is by faith. Sanctification is by faith as well. All right? None of our works are meritorious. None of our works are meritorious. They need the righteousness of Christ. All right? So this, this is an important just dynamic that we need to recognize in the plan of salvation. All right, here's Great Controversy, page 488. Satan invents unnumbered schemes to occupy our minds that they may not dwell upon the very work with which we ought to be best acquainted. The arch deceiver hates the great truths that bring to view an atoning sacrifice. What's that? Justification. And an all-powerful mediator. He knows that with him everything depends on his diverting minds from Jesus and his truth. Notice that the devil does not want us to hold these things in a wonderful tension. The atoning sacrifice and an all-powerful mediator. It is both of these similar to the nature of Christ. Humanity and divinity, justification and sanctification need to be held in a wonderful tension. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What is that? Justification. And in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. What is that? That's sanctification. So, so you have this, this all the way through the writings of Ellen White. The grace of Christ purifies while it pardons and fits men for a holy heaven. Moving on. Through the perfect obedience of the Son of God, through the merits of his blood, and the power of his intercession, sorry for that typo, men <laughs> may become a partaker of the divine nature. Notice, the merits of his blood, justification, and the power of his intercession, sanctification. It is both of these. The ministry of Jesus at the cross is as essential as the ministry of Jesus as our high priest in heaven. Both of them are essential to the plan of salvation. The book Education. Another lesson the tabernacle through its service of sacrifice was to teach. The lesson of pardon of sin and power through the Savior for obedience unto life. Now I could go on and on and on, but you can see this all the way through Scripture and through the writings of Ellen White. There is both of these and when we use the sanctuary as our hermeneutical lens for understanding the gospel, we can see clearly 
that it's the courtyard and holy place, not the courtyard or the holy place. There's a progression that takes place. Another interesting observation is that when you read the Bible, there is definitely an overlap between justification and sanctification. They are distinct, but there's an overlap. When a baby's born, there is growth that takes place immediately, or I would say even in utero. All right? so, so when we talk about things like the thief on the cross, um, I believe that the moment that he was justified, there was a sanctification process that took place. Now, it didn't last very long, okay? But it's not how far you get. It's being in the process. He's saved. He's saved, all right? Now, when we look at the, the narrative in the Gospels in relationship to this woman caught in the act of adultery, you see this very same nuance in the words of Jesus. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Pardon. Go and sin no more. Power. All right? Now, that was not so much a command, but a promise. All right? Neither do I condemn you. Pardon. Go and sin no more. So, Jesus, in relationship to this woman, is stating in the nuances very simply, but yet so profoundly, pardon and power. Now, the beauty of this picture, it shows us exactly how Jesus relates to us. All right? When we sin, many times we have this image of God... Um, just very angry or out to get us, so forth. There's a lot of shame. However, in this picture, you see exactly how God deals with us. Pardon and power. Both of them together. Pardon you for your sin and power to overcome. Now, I've said a lot, and I want to open it up for some questions and dialogue uh, before we progress, any any questions or comments? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Right. Right. There's an Ellen White quote, and I can't seem to find it. I've, I've read it. I promise I've read it. Um, <clears throat> she actually addresses that hypothetical situation, and she brings out that angels are there to prolong the life. In other words, if you sin... God is going to ensure that you don't die five minutes afterwards if six minute after, minutes afterwards you would have repented. You, you know what I mean? In other words, it's not like, oh, 
Five minutes, you're gone. Uh, if six minutes would have been extended, you would have repented. And that, to me, is, is that element of, of grace that, that is there. So, so that is how we can have assurance in that reality. Uh, I, I believe that we have used a, a philosophical framework of understanding the plan of salvation from a static standpoint. Either saved or not saved. All right? This, this static standpoint of a state. All right? But when you read scripture, it is a description of human nature that is historical and dynamic. All right? There's a dynamic process that takes place. And when we are baptized, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, all those neural pathways, those inclinations, they're still there. All right? And as we walk with God, it is not because God's power is not sufficient, it's because of human weakness that we fall. But it takes time to, to form those new neural pathways. And as we grow, as we mature, those neural pathways become firmer and living the sanctified life becomes habitual. All right? This is neuroscience. You know, I remember the first time I learned how to drive a stick shift car. It was terrible. All right? I was canvassing in Vermont. It was just awful. And my leader came with me. We're going up a hill, fifth gear. He's like, fourth gear, shift to fourth, too late. Third gear, second gear. And then I said, first gear. You know, and so he, it was just awful. All right? However, over trial and development, uh, stick shift driving, it's been a while, but it became natural, second nature, all right? Um, when a baby's learning to walk, all right, uh, I never see a loving parent that swats that child for falling after learning to walk, all right? There's a progression that takes place. But as we reach maturity, physical maturity, walking becomes easier, right? And it gets to the place physically where, uh, you know, anyone fall today coming into GYC? I mean, perhaps you did, but it's more like an anomaly. You know, you're like, oh, I, I fell, okay? So, so, so I, I mean, this is, this is analogous. It's not like, oh, I had my daily fall, all right? I, I didn't fall down the stairs today. You know, it, it usually happens every other day or something. You know, and, and so, but, but the point is, I mean, this is analogous and these analogies are imperfect, but, but the point is that God has built us in a way, in a historical reality, as we learn to depend on him, all right, that Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages that through the providence of grace, that following God can be like following our own impulses. All right? But, but there's a progression that takes place. God can work in us to the place where we love good and hate evil. That's a transformation. All right? But that's a process. When we come to Jesus, we come with all our baggage, all our neural pathways, you know, haywired and so forth. He declares us righteous and he says, look, let's go through this walk of transformation. All right? It's not about how far you get. It's about being in the walk. And throughout that process, there is a rewiring of the neural pathways. This is not like a metaphysical boom where God comes down and, you know, has his 
power come out, and then we just get a rewiring of our brain immediately upon justification. That would be nice, all right? But those neural pathways are there, and there is grace as we learn to walk with him. I know that was a very long answer, but anyways. All right, yes. Yes. We don't get anything from that. But our disobedience, can I call it dismeritorious? Yes. You know what I mean? Right. And so, yeah, I don't get any bounty points for, any, for obeying. But, right. Well, I get bam if I disobey. Kind of like the, the guy who got hit by the bus kind of thing. Right. But what I'm seeing is, is that for the person who surrendered. Yes. Got, that's a critical point. Yes. Yes. And their disobedience or obedience is no longer effect as long as they surrender. Yes. And that takes care of the bus guy. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so really, it's, it's about the posture and of surrender that, that becomes the ground. All right? And the posture of surrender really determines the posture of, of your intentions. All right? And, and that... That's the thing. If we get on this performance scale of disobedience, obedience, in and out of justification, it really leads to a miserable existence. Okay? It, it really does. But if we are in Christ, in that assurance, I'm not there yet. I'm not where I was. I'm a work in progress. He'll get me there. All right? Then we can be in that work. And the posture of the Christian needs to be on this, this notion of total dependence. All right? If we are in that posture of total dependence, I am the vine, you are the branches, you know, that without me you can do nothing. If we are depending on Christ every single day, all right, he takes care of the end product. The fruit takes care of itself if you're connected, all right? So, so our focus needs to be maintaining that connection. The fruit will take care of itself. God will take care of that, all right? The issue we have is when we start focusing on the fruit production rather than the dependency posture as, as a Christian. So, so we have this wonderful, beautiful tension of covering and transformation, declaration and renewal, and God is the author and the finisher of this entire process. And you can rest in the reality of who God is through this process. Yes, and then back there. I work, I work a lot with people who have mental health issues. Yes. Right. And then it takes us that time to get back to God, you know, like by searching and finding, you know, we lost him in a day, it takes three right. days to get it back. And I feel like it's at that point that people say, oh, well, you know, it's about where I feel like there's not everybody, I don't know their heart, but I feel like that's where some of us are when we say things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We feel like things are going well, but it, you don't know how far you are sometimes until life happens. 
Right, right. You know, there is this element of self-awareness, all right? And there's a statement by Ellen White that says, the closer you come to Christ, the more sinful you'll appear, all right? So, so there's this almost dichotomy between our own self-awareness and the way that God sees us, all right? In other words, I believe that the last generation that is translated without seeing death will never, from a self-awareness standpoint, say, you know what? I've arrived. That will never come across the consciousness, all right? But God will look down and say, imputed, imparted, covered, all right? There's a fundamental difference between the two, all right? Because if we ever get to the place where we say, you know what, I've arrived. I heard one person say, you know what, I haven't sinned in two years. I mean, this is just a fascinating paradigm, you know? It's like, wow, you know, that, that framework that, that you come from, and, and we come to a relative righteousness. In other words, it's a righteousness that is like eminent. We look at the other person and we say, look, I'm vegan, they're not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I eat two meals, they eat three meals. You know, we, we come down to this point and I say, I'm, I'm better than this person. But notice the publican and the Pharisee, that whole paradigm. All right, there's that self-awareness of unrighteousness. There's the pride of the other one. And Jesus says, one person walked away justified, the other did not. So that's something we need to recognize. There's the whole element of self-awareness that we are unworthy, that, that we'll always be in our reference point and frame. Not that we are to focus on that, please understand, but, but that, that's going to be a framework. But let God be the one that declares. But in our own self-awareness, we need to be like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. You read the progression in the chapters preceding Isaiah 6 where he sees God. He says, woe to that person, woe to that person, woe to this person, woe. And then chapter 6, woe is me. All right? Sees God, woe is me. And that's where we need to be. All right? In that wonderful tension of seeing God in his glory and then that self-awareness, not that it comes from self-focus, but that, that wonderful tension of that self-awareness of our unworthiness before him. And that's the proper context for our Christian experience as we move on. One more question and then we'll close. Right. Yes. Yes.
All right. Um, I'm going to end a little bit early today. Uh, next seminar tomorrow morning, uh, Friday, 9-15, um, Last Generation Theology. And uh, it's a term that 21st century Adventists are allergic to. How do we get here? A look at the most influential Adventist theologian that nobody has heard of. It's not Andreasen, by the way. All right. Um, so uh, tomorrow, um, I am going to, in a brief time, give a descriptive uh, picture of M.L. Andreasen's theological package, because that's what it is. All right. And M.L. Andreasen is arguably one of the most reacted to theologians in the modern era, all right? We're going to talk about Andreasen, his interaction with questions on doctrine, okay, which is the most divisive book in the history of Adventism. All right, that's, those are not my words, that's George Knight, all right? Then we have another theologian that came after him and essentially systematized questions on doctrine, all right? We'll be looking at these and... Um, and I, I want to make it more descriptive and then provide some personal reflections afterwards, not all my reflections, but personal reflections, and then kind of let you sit on it a little bit and, 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 and look at it uh, from, from a biblical perspective. But last generation theology is something that, in terms of the sanctuary, in terms of what it means to live without a mediator, is something that we really need to kind of process in terms of our eschatology and soteriology. So that'll be tomorrow, and then Saturday is uh, the Omega, the Omega apostasy. So let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beautiful tension in Scripture that you pardon us and you give us power. We pray that you would help us by your grace to accept the provisions that you made for us on Calvary and as our high priest. We thank you for the work that you are doing in and through us. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.